But our title tonight, it's not about instructions. Our title is Forgiveness Brings Freedom. Forgiveness Brings Freedom. And maybe you're here tonight and you're struggling to forgive somebody. We're going to see a great example in Scripture what that looks like when we get to chapter 50. So there'll be a lot of, you know, last week there wasn't a ton of what I would call personal application in all these rebuke and prophetic verses. Tonight will be the opposite. There'll be a lot of, I think, forgiveness application for all of us. Because forgiveness is biblical, it's scriptural, we'll look at some verses. And really what it does, it frees us and allows us to move on. But verse 29, let's get started. Here's what it says. Then he gave them, and that's the he is Jacob, and them is the family, these instructions. I'm about to be gathered to my people. That's code words in the Old Testament for I'm about to die. So he says, bury me with my fathers in the cave in the field of Ephron the Hittite, the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre in Canaan, which Abram brought, he bought, excuse me, along with the field as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite. And we've been in Genesis a while, so let's pop up a verse from chapter 13 just to refresh our memory a little bit. This is Genesis 13, and it says, if you read it with me, Abram, because his name hadn't even been changed yet when this was written, went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, which is still a city over there, by the way, where he pitched his tents. And look what he did. There he built an altar to the Lord. So it was a special place to Abram or Abraham way before he bought this cave as a burial site. He remembered it as a place he worshiped the Lord. He built an altar right as he was getting into the promised land. And he kept returning all through Scripture to that same site. So this is where Jacob wants to be buried with his patriarch family. Then he kind of tells us in 31 why he wants to go there, which I just sort of gave away. He says, there Abraham and his wife Sarah were buried. There Isaac and his wife Rebekah were buried. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave in it were bought from the Hittites. So maybe we need a Hittite refresher also since we're on the tail end of the, of the chapter. If we went back to the early, early parts of, of Scripture, you know, Ham, excuse me, Noah had three sons. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Well, Ham, that middle son, had four sons, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. They're in the land of the Canaanites, the, and Canaan is the name of the country, but Canaan was a person. He fathered many, many tribes, which is really, as you've heard me joke about up here before, all of the names that end in ite, I tend to call them the ites, like these Hittites, those are all descendants of Canaan. So that's who he bought this field from, which would be kind of his distant cousins in a way, three or four generations removed. But let's talk a minute about this cave of Machpelah. It's also called the Tomb of the Patriarchs. It's all through Scripture, and, and unless you're Jewish, I know there is one or two Jewish friends of mine here tonight, we probably don't know as Gentiles, but it's the second most holy site in the nation of Israel. The first would be the Temple Mount, where the, the wedding wall is. Because all their patriarchs, and really, since we're grafted in, we're adopted in, they're really our patriarchs too, they're all there with their wives, but um, Jacob and his wife Leah are in there, because if you remember our story in Genesis, Rachel died in childbirth, and he buried her on the side of the road. So she's the only one that's not there. 
But here's something interesting as I was reading, um, kind of refreshing my own memory. How about some Jewish tradition? You want to take a little detour for Jewish tradition? Here's what Jewish tradition says. And it does tie into Scripture, though, by the way. But this is not in the Bible, so don't hold me to it. But I think it's kind of interesting to know. Jewish tradition says, you know, Abraham, Abram, there's a point in time where he met God. There was three men, or he thought they were men. Two of them ended up being angels. Those are the two that go into Sodom and Gomorrah. But one of them is the Lord. And so he has this interaction with the Lord. That's all in Scripture. So that part's the truth. The Jewish cultural tradition, though, says, and in the story in the Bible, you know, there's a point where Abram tries to cook a meal. He gets a calf. Well, Jewish tradition says the calf got away. He goes to chase it, and he finds this cave of Machpelah. And then he, he kind of explores it, and as he's looking for this, you know, goat or this calf, he sees the graves of two other people that aren't mentioned in Scripture, Adam and Eve. That's what the Jewish cultural tradition says. The Bible doesn't. We don't know where they are, but the Jews are convinced they're in the same cave as the patriarchs. Does it really matter? No. It's just kind of interesting to know because that way if you ever hear somebody, will say, Adam and Eve are in there too. Well, maybe, but God didn't feel it was important enough to list them in his list. So either way, it's just kind of interesting um, I think that they're supposedly in there. But brings up another question, maybe. Is that cave still accessible? Where is it? Can I go look at it? Well, you could go over there. Um, if you're Jewish, you wouldn't have much luck because it's in Palestinian territory. It is in the city of Hebron, which I mentioned a while ago. And best I could tell, I did Google some numbers. Right now in Hebron, there's about 200,000 Palestinians, only 700 Jews. They might let Jews in there for one day of the year, but as Gentile tourists, we might could see, but you wouldn't see a whole lot because there's a big Muslim mosque on top of it. But it is there. It's a real place, just like in Scripture when God's Word says something is there, it is still there to this day. Next verse, verse 33. When Jacob had finished giving these instructions to his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed, breathed his last, and would gather to his people. Once again, what does that really mean? He died. Now we start the last chapter. This is it. Chapter 50. We're in the home stretch. It's either very exciting or very sad. You can tell me later which one you think that is. Um, but there's some good stuff in this chapter. I'll just tell you. Here's what it says in verse 1. Genesis 50, verse 1. Joseph, he's very sad because his father literally just passed away. He threw himself on his father and wept over him and kissed him. Then Joseph directed the physicians in his service to embalm his father, Israel. Likely, like the Egyptians would do, like a mummy. So the physicians embalmed him, taking a full 40 days. For that was the time required for embalming. So it was a very elaborate process, which is why I said, in my mind, that sounds like mummification. But here's what it says in the last part of verse 3. The Egyptians mourned him, mourned Jacob for 70 days. And that's a long time, isn't it? That's a long funeral. But when a Pharaoh died, here's what's kind of interesting. When a Pharaoh died, there was a law in the nation of Egypt. The nation had to mourn 72 days, 72. So the fact they mourned 
Joseph's father for 70 ought to tell us how important Joseph was in their culture. He's two days short of Pharaoh is kind of how you could see that. Verse 4 says, when the days of mourning had passed, those 40 days and those 70 days were the total, Joseph said to Pharaoh's court, if I have found favor in your eyes, and clearly he had, by the way, speak to Pharaoh for me. In other words, go to him, intercede for me. Tell him this, that my father made me swear an oath, and I said, I'm about to die. And he said, excuse me, bury me in the tomb I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. Now let me, Joseph, go up and bury my father, then I will return. So Joseph is making this request to Pharaoh's court, which kind of, I think, tells us in a way, he didn't always have direct access to Pharaoh. You know, they thought Pharaoh was God. He was second to Pharaoh. But even in this case, he's sending the court, like the elite people, to intercede for him because likely he was a little nervous or he wanted some favor from the whole group. He didn't ask Pharaoh himself. But look what Pharaoh sends back as his answer. Verse 6. Pharaoh said, go up, bury your father as he made you swear to do. So Pharaoh honored his request. He honored what Joseph was asking. Why would he do that? Well, we've talked about earlier through this whole series how important Joseph was, how he had risen up to be the number two guy. Pharaoh valued Joseph as an advisor. He also, I think, he valued Joseph's work ethic, which brings up our first point if you're taking notes tonight. Joseph was an excellent employee, is how we might say that. So how does that apply to us? Well, it's on the screen. Being an excellent, not an average, not a mediocre, not a sort of okay one, an excellent employee is part of all of our testimony. Mine, yours, all of us, all of you watching online tonight. But look what it says in parentheses. The opposite. If we're a bad employee... It's really a bad testimony, not just for you. In a way, it makes Christ's followers look bad as a whole. It doesn't ref- reflect well on the Lord. And unfortunately, you know, I've heard Pastor Dave Fulkers teach on this, and he's told me over the years, he's heard many, you know, he was sort of a high-level business executive. He heard many high-level leaders say, I don't like hiring Christians. Some of them are lazy. They think they're just going to coast while they're at work. Now, that's not any of you. You're the, you're the solid Wednesday night people, I know. But make sure our work ethic makes God look good. It's like a personal challenge for us because here's why I would say that. Think how it could almost mess somebody's open, you know, we always talk about open doors, open doors. If we're not good workers, why would people be curious to come to church and we invite them? They might think they're going to get lazy by showing up here or something, if we're lazy. Our work ethic is huge as part of our own personal testimony, but also as a testimony for Christ followers as a whole. And really, once again, it makes God look good. So let's keep moving. Verse 7. So Joseph went up to bury his father, as dad asked. All Pharaoh's officials accompanied him, the dignitaries of his court, all the dignitaries of Egypt, besides all the members of Joseph's household and his brothers and those belonging to his father's households. Because remember, Joseph had a pretty big extended family, if you count wives, kids, children, cousins, etc. Only their children, the ones that were too young to travel likely, were, and their flocks and herds were left in Goshen. Chariots and horsemen also went up with him. It was a very 
And I would add another very, a very, very large company or group of people. And this was basically unheard of. Egyptians did not mourn non-Egyptians. We already uh, told us they mourned for 70 of the Pharaoh's 72 days. Now they're sending this ginormous procession up to the, the gravesite. And I try to think of a modern-day equivalent for us. Well, pretend one of you died, and I won't call any names because maybe you think I'm saying you're going to die soon. Um, I started to use one of my friend's names in here, but I won't. We'll just say maybe I died. How about me? I'll use me as an example. What if I die when I get back from Africa? It would be like the entire royal family of England showing up here at Calvary for the funeral. That's the equivalent of what's happening here. Royalty, which we know they're not royal, but they think they are. Rulers, elite people showing up for this non-native person's funeral. It's not even really Joseph's funeral. It's his dad's, but it shows you how much Joseph, I think, impacted them and their culture. It would literally be unheard of. So when they reached the threshing floor of Atad, that's in verse 10, near the Jordan, they lamented. They all started crying and wailing loudly and bitterly. It was part of the cultural thing to do. And there Joseph observed a seven-day period of mourning for his father. So they had to wail and grieve and make a big public display. And, and the more you wailed and grieve, you know, the more you were kind of telling people how, how sorry you were that person was gone. And it impacted the people that were already the natives living there, these Canaanites. When the Canaanites who lived there saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, these Egyptians, because they don't know Joseph, you know, is not Egyptian, are holding a solemn ceremony of mourning. And then Scripture tells us that is why that place near the Jordan is called Abel Mizraim, which means the meadow of mourning. So it was so big, so unusual, even the native Canaanites heard it and noticed. Verse 12 tells us, Jacob's sons did as he commanded them. Well, if you remember our Genesis story, they sure didn't always obey him, did they? I mean, I'll, just, I'll, I'll list some examples from last week that we kind of reviewed. The oldest son, Reuben, slept with his wife or his servant lady, but he did call her his wife, Bilhah. Simeon and Levi, remember, they wiped out all the men of Shechem because their, their sister got raped. Then Judah's the one, which is the tribe of Judah Jesus descended from. Judah's the one that suggested they sell Joseph into slavery. And maybe the one that maybe is the worst, because the other ones at the end get redeemed. Dan, the tribe of Dan and the person Dan, led the whole nation to idolatry. They got really wicked. We talked last week about burning children in, you know, statues' arms. And so... Since they got, these five at least, got a pretty stern rebuke last week on these prayers slash prophecy. Right now they're trying to, I think, obey their father because he corrected them. They are going to do everything he said, take me back to Canaan, put me in that cave where my ancestors are. So I think maybe they, they did listen to dad before he died. Verse 13 tells us, they carried him to the land of Canaan and they buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre. Where, which Abraham had bought along with the field as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite. Now, we already covered that in 49, so we're just going to move on from that one. We already talked about where it is. Go visit if you like. What happens next? Well, after burying his father, verse, verse 14 tells us, Joseph returned to Egypt together with his brothers and all the others, that whole big royal procession that had gone to bury his father. But here comes a curveball that probably... 
Joseph wasn't expecting, and probably not us either, unless we've read this story a bunch. When Joseph's brothers saw their father was dead, they said, what if? What if? Those are two bad words, by the way. We'll talk about that in a second. What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? They hadn't been listening very well, have they? Joseph has already put all that behind him. He's blessed them. He's helped them. He's given his brothers, I would say anyway, no reason to be suspicious of what they just said. He's forgiven them. It's genuine. He's blessed them. He put, remember, put silver in their sack. He gave them more food than they needed. He brought them all down to Goshen, gave them property, animals. They're doing well. What are they doing? Playing the what if game. What if he's going to get us finally for what we did all those years ago? They think, in a way, I think, at least in my opinion, that his forgiveness is only superficial. Like he only did that and said that to us because dad was alive and he was using us to get his brother Benjamin and our dad down here. They're playing the what if game, which is our next point to write down. What ifs, like these brothers are doing, they're usually based on fear and they always come from the enemy. So for us, don't play the what if game. What if God is for us, is what I would say to that what if they put out there. Because he is. That's not even a what if. That's a guarantee. Their what if is based on fear, and the opposite of fear is what? Faith. It's on the screen for you. If I was waiting for somebody to read it for me. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Don't leave me hanging. But we, as Christ followers, are called in Scripture to have faith. We don't always understand it. We don't always understand what God is doing. That's why it's sometimes called blind faith. But we don't need to know all the details. It's about trusting God. And if we trust the Lord, we don't need to imagine what if. That's just Satan messing with our minds, trying to make us imagine the worst outcome. That's exactly what these brothers are doing. So what's their next step? So they sent word to Joseph. They're not even brave enough to go ask him about it. They sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. That's their scripted message they gave somebody, this messenger. But here's... Here's what I think it's safe to us. You know, we're assuming, or at least I am. It's safe to assume, I believe, that Joseph never said this. Uh, I mean, Jacob, excuse me. Jacob never It's hard to get Joseph and Jacob sometimes straight. Their names swirl together in your mind. So if I say them backwards, correct me later. But likely Jacob never said this. Here's why I think that. So if he never did, in a way, they're lying. Because remember, if we were to go back to last week, Joseph himself spent a lot of time at dad's bedside when he was, you know, kind of dying slowly. You would think if Jacob was going to say something like this, he would have said it face to face. At least I would believe that. He wouldn't need to send a messenger after the fact. So this is just his brothers playing that same dumb what if game, I think. And we aren't really told who the messenger was, but... um, 
if they were to pick the one that might have the best success, maybe they talk Benjamin. Remember, Benjamin was sort of the, the second favorite son, and he was Joseph's long-lost brother. So they're probably, in my mind, okay, we got to write a note. we got to tell, this is what Dad said, and we're going to get Benjamin to do it because he surely will listen to Benjamin. But if that's true, and that's my speculation, let me be clear, if it was a lie, then they're really doing almost a, a terrible thing. They're using Joseph's grief and sadness over his father's passing and trying to kind of manipulate his emotions. Why would they do such a terrible thing? Well, I think they're guilty. They still are condemning themselves. They're listening to the enemy playing this what-if game. They're also listening to the enemy because he's whispering probably to them, he's not forgiving you. He just said that. He's going to kill you as soon as Jacob's gone. They're so worried about it, they won't even address it because he probably would have corrected them if they'd have brought it up. But look what 17, I, only, I stopped at the first half of 17. If I read the next half of 17, it says, when their message came to him, Joseph wept. Joseph wept. Why do you think he wept? doesn't really say, but I think it's, once again, pretty easy to read between the lines here. Joseph realizes, probably for the first time, my brothers don't trust me. They don't believe that I've forgiven them, even though I really have in my heart. And I think in Scripture it's clear he forgave them because he blessed them. But he also realizes my brothers think or assume, they're assuming the worst about my character. It's, you know, we've made the case all through Genesis that Joseph has an exemplary character, doesn't he? He always does what I would call the right thing. The only thing we could ever find fault in all 50 chapters, remember, that initial dream where he kind of was a little prideful and said, you're all going to bow down to me. And that's what kind of got him, you know, in trouble. Other than that one thing, his character has been exemplary. So he's almost heartbroken, devastated maybe even, that they don't trust him, and they're assuming the worst. But this little incident right here, it's a great picture. You know, God always uses Scripture and stories to, to show us his character. Look what Joseph showed his brothers all through these verses, even up until now. Kindness, forgiveness, grace, and mercy. What has God shown all of us? Same words. Kindness, forgiveness, grace, and mercy. His brothers didn't deserve it because they really did bad things to him, threw him in that pit. But did we deserve it either? No. But what did we get for our sinful misbehavior? Kindness, forgiveness, grace, mercy. How good is our God? So good we can't even imagine it. How did his brothers respond to that, though? A bunch of doubts. But if we're honest, when we think of our own salvation, our own forgiveness, the enemy wants us to doubt our forgiveness, doesn't he, sometime? Now, we know we're not supposed to. We know Scripture says don't do it. But even as Christ followers, we sometimes doubt if we know especially that we had this horrible, terrible life in the past. Now, maybe if you were saved at a young age or you didn't do a bunch of horrible things like maybe me and some of the rest of us in this room have, you don't have a, a big problem imagining you're forgiven. But the worse you've done, the harder it is to imagine you're forgiven sometimes. And the enemy loves to play the what-if game 
based on those thoughts. So don't let him do it. We are totally forgiven. We need to look at a famous verse, I think, though, to drive this point home. It's Psalm 103. Look what it says. As far as the east is from the west. You know that verse. That's how far God has removed our sin, which means really that's how far our forgiveness extends. But if you ever wonder, sometimes I think crazy stuff sometimes. Have you ever wondered why it says as far as east from the west instead of north to south? Probably not, because I'm probably the only weirdo in here like that. But here, here's why. I did think about why, and it kind of dawned on me. I didn't even have to look it up. If you tonight start out the door and go east, you will go east forever, forever, and ever, and you will never go west unless you turn around. East is east. But if you go south, if you could, you'll hit the south pole, you'll come around it, and then what happens? You're going north. So that verse wouldn't apply if it said as far as north is from south. It only works either east to west or west to east. Kind of interesting, isn't it? Not that it matters, but I think weird things sometimes. That's my confession. But it, it made sense to me once I thought about it. I'm like, God, God is so smart. You know, he knew that would, that's his truth. He, he designed the world and the globe. He knows if you go east, it never ends. So if you doubt me, go out the door and try tonight. You know, I'll see you in you know, heaven someday because you'll never get there. Um, verse 18. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. They're still playing what if. We are your slaves. In other words, we owe you. We know it, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. And here's the real key. Am I in the place of God? Am I in the place of God? And if we read that fast, we probably wouldn't even think really, what, what does he mean by there? Well, what, here's what he's really saying, I think. If I were to take revenge like you th are suspicious I'm going to do, I would be assuming God and only God's rightful place. I'm not the judge. He is. Let me read you a verse out of Deuteronomy. It won't be on the screen, but you'll, you'll know this verse as I read it. It's Deuteronomy 32, 35. It says, this is God speaking. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. That wasn't written yet because we're in Genesis, but Joseph knew that concept is how, because, you know, God says his laws are on our heart. He knows it's not his place to do what they're thinking he would do. And those, that same concept is all through scripture. We will look at a verse out of Ecclesiastes. That one's also, I think, equally important. And this should give us great freedom, by the way, as Christ followers. God will bring every deed, not most deeds, not three-quarters of them, every deed into judgment, including what people think are the hidden things, including those hidden things that people think nobody knows, whether it's good or evil. Doesn't matter. So if it's a good thing that maybe we've done, because there is scriptures, you know, that says, when you serve, do it quietly. Don't let people see you. Don't be that Pharisee praying loud, elaborate prayers on the corner. He got all his reward right then and there. You just serve quietly behind the scenes, and you will get rewarded for it. But if it's a terrible bad thing, there will be a judgment to come with that one. And once again, it's all through Scripture. But the point is trying to Joseph is trying to make, and the one I just tried to make too with those two verses, 
Only God can look into the heart and see the motives of the people that we know have hurt us. They may have hurt us. Joseph's brothers hurt him, hurt him terribly. But even Joseph doesn't know their motivation. I mean, we think we know people's motives sometimes. We're seeing this superficial outside cause and effect version. But only God knows the inner motives. So Joseph is saying, am I in the place of God? I don't know their heart. I don't know their motive. I know what the action was. God is the real judge, and I'm confident to wait on him to take care of you guys. If your motives have changed and you've repented and you're better, it'll all be okay is kind of what he's hinting at. Either way, I'm not the one judging you. He is. Scripture's all through, once again, full of that concept. And if we look through the Old Testament, you know, God was kind of well known in the Old Testament for sometimes swift justice. Swift justice, swift punishment, depending on what the person did. But we have other examples all through Scripture, Old and New Testament, where God, through the Holy Spirit, goes into like overdrive working on their conscience, convicting them, poking them, elbowing them in the ribs, as I call it sometime, because he wants them to repent and change. Sometimes he punishes, quick judgment. Sometimes he prolongs it so the person will get convicted by the Lord and change on their own. He wants us to all repent, repent of our sin, repent of our wrong, and then change to be more like his son Jesus. And if you've never done that, we'll give you a chance at the end of the service tonight to come down, pray, let's talk about it. Change your life. Don't leave this room tonight without repenting and turning away from whatever hidden thing you think you're doing. But here's one thing that's crystal clear and absolute certain in Scripture. God will make all things right. All things. Good and bad, all things right. Once again, our job is to trust him as he does that. That is what Joseph is saying here. Which brings up our third point. I've kind of said it a couple different ways tonight, but if you're writing, maybe you want to write it down. Only God can look into people's hearts and motives. He will examine them. He will be the judge for us Our job is to let it go. Let it go. He will deal with them accordingly, fairly, justly, rightly. He will make all things right. Because look at the next verse. Joseph doesn't sugarcoat what happened. In verse 20, and I I love this verse, and it's got a lot of application. We don't have time to break down. You intended to harm me, and he means when you threw me in that pit. But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And we read that verse in earlier chapters. Remember, he he used Joseph to bring food to the whole region, not just Egypt, not just Canaan. The region had food because of Joseph. But he's saying, you intend to harm me. What he's really saying, and, and other translations say it even more plainly, other translations say in that same verse, You meant it for evil when you sold me like that. You meant it for evil, but God used your evil for his glory. That's what he's really telling them. So then, he says, verse 21, don't be afraid. I will provide for you. I've already been providing for you and your children. So he reassured them again and spoke kindly to them. 
Which brings up our last point to write down. Because we're going to talk about forgiveness for a few minutes. When we forgive somebody, this is more for us, not for Joseph. But it does include Joseph. It doesn't minimize the sin of that person that hurt us. That person very well did baby bad things to you, some of you, to me, to whoever is listening. Forgiveness does not minimize that. It doesn't condone it. It's not saying it didn't happen, just like Joseph didn't say that. What it's doing, though, it's freeing us. It frees us so we can let it go and move on. That's what forgiveness is doing. That's what Joseph is trying to tell him again, that he's already, I've already forgiven you guys. Let this thing go. But he's even going to take some extra steps and say, I'm going to provide for you and your children. So let's talk about biblical forgiveness for a second. Let's look on the screen. This is some concepts for us. It starts with a verse. Here's our real instruction from the Lord, the command. Forgive everybody else just as the Lord forgave me and you, us. Do we deserve it? No. Do they deserve it? Maybe not. That doesn't matter. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. But there's three kind of keys to what that would look like in our really personal lives. Our forgiveness, like that verse said, it flows out of God's forgiveness for us, to us. We can forgive because we've been forgiven. It's like paying it forward. But look what number two says. It's not giving up on justice. It's not condoning what they did and saying it was minimized or it's okay. Forgiveness is just saying like Joseph did. Okay, Lord, they're yours. I trust you to deal with them justly and fairly. I'm letting it go where I can get on with my life. I trust you to do the right thing. And he's God. Doesn't he always do the right thing? So it's a given that's going to happen. If we won't let it go, I don't have time to talk about it. It just becomes poison to us. We're poisoning ourselves with unforgiveness. Maybe some of you need to hear this one, though, because we don't want to let those people off our hook sometimes, do we? I mean, we're, we're people. We're sinners. I know what they did. I am not letting them off the hook. Well, look what number three says. Just because I let them off my hook or your hook, it does not mean they're off of God's hook, does it? If they need to be gotten, he will get them in the end. But he may want to work on their conscience to lead them to repentance so they can join us in his kingdom. That's his real goal, restoration, repentance. So let it go. Give it to God. Trust that he will be a fair and righteous judge. Last few verses, verse 22, it says, Joseph stayed in Egypt along with his father's family, all his father's family, and he lived 110 years. Isn't it interesting how Genesis started with super long lifespans? Now, by the time of Joseph, we're down to kind of what I would call almost normal lifespan. There's people in Japan that are over 110 right now, I think. I think the oldest lady... Maybe she's dead now, but she was 113 last I checked. And he saw the third generation of Ephraim's children. So it's an extended family he's gotten blessed to witness. Also, the children of Machir, son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God, but God, he will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
So Joseph's faith never wavered. He has great faith when he said that. God will surely aid you, and he will take you out of here back to the land he promised us. But he's going to add a little qualifier like Jacob did. Verse 25 says, And Joseph made the Israelites, all the rest of the people, swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid. He repeats himself. Then you must carry my bones up from this place. In other words, get me out of Egypt. This is a pagan nation. I've been down here. I've been successful, but I don't belong here. When I die, take me out of this place. Take me with you. So in 26, it says, when Joseph died at the age of 110, after they embalmed him, another embalming, probably the 40-day one like we read about for Jacob, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. And we don't know, Scripture doesn't really tell us, once again, some of Dave's speculation, his coffin likely became some sort of monument to the people for kind of a good reason. And if you think about it, we still do that in, a, in America sometime. Anybody ever been to Lincoln's tomb? And I'm not talking about the one in D.C., by the way. That's Lincoln's monument. Lincoln's tomb, I see a couple of hands, is in Springfield, Illinois. But he's in a crypt above ground in this kind of mausoleum-looking thing or whatever. Maybe he's in the ground. I see hands telling me he's in the ground. I've never been there, so I'll take your word for it. Um, either way, we kind of make monuments to people sometime. Um, now we've got to hear some more Jewish tradition. I'll only give you one tradition. How about another one before we close? Jewish tradition says he was above ground. It was like a visible thing, and he's in bombs, so it would have been okay. And they did eventually, Scripture does say they took him out of there, by the way. We just can't get to it tonight. But when future generations would grow up, the children would like point to that thing and go, what is that? Who's in there? And why is he there? Because kids, of course, are curious. They would likely say that. And the adults would answer, Joseph was a great man that did not want to be buried in Egypt. He wanted to be buried in the promised land, and one day, God will take us, our nation, he will take all of us there. So it was like a, a, almost a testimony, if Jewish tradition is accurate, to God is going to get us out of here, and there's a visible reminder. But once again, Scripture doesn't say. So what happened next? I can't leave you hanging. That is the last verse of Genesis, but um, we're going to look at two verses out of Exodus because we're not going to go to Exodus. We're going to Mark next week. And you know the story, but this will kind of bridge the gap a little bit. Let's look at it. Exodus 1, verse 6 and 7. It says, Joseph and all his brothers and that whole generation died. So not just Joseph now, they all died. But the Israelites, the nation, were extreme, exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous, the entire land of Egypt, Goshen, was filled with them. Then we jump down to verse 12, same chapter. The more they were oppressed, because it does say, the verses I skipped, it says, a Pharaoh came into power that did not know Joseph, didn't remember Joseph, didn't care about Joseph, is a great way to think of it. The more they multiplied and spread... The more Pharaoh and the Egyptians got nervous. God was blessing his people. They became so numerous, the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. And then later, if we were to keep reading, but we're almost out of time, that's when the whole Exodus, Red Sea, they became enslaved. 
Because they weren't, you know, we know in Scripture it says they were in Egypt 400 to 430 years. There's both numbers depending on how you count it. They weren't enslaved the entire time. They were there multiplying, growing. They were enslaved for a long period, way over 200 years at least of that, maybe up to even 300. But they became almost too numerous. God blessed them so much, Egypt enslaved them all and made them laborers for building projects. And if you want to see the movie, just rent the Ten Commandments at the library. It'll refresh your memory. It, it's a great story, isn't it? But you know the story. It's a famous story. But we don't want to end on that one either. What I really want to end on, and we'll be done in a second, is forgiveness. Because this chapter, the tail end of it, really kind of segued over to a different thing that really has a lot of application for me and you. I'm going to reread a verse. I won't put it back on the screen, but I'm going to reread that verse out of Ecclesiastes. God will bring every deed that any of us do, any of our friends do, even people that hate us do, into judgment. Every deed into judgment, including all of the hidden things, whether it's good or evil. Our job is to trust him and let him be that righteous judge. But along with that verse, I kind of want to revisit two points. And maybe some of you need to hear this that are harboring unforgiveness. Maybe your father treated you terribly growing up. He told you you'd never amount to him anything. There's people likely here in the crowd this size that had a physically abused, mentally, emotionally, spiritually even abused. People do terrible things that don't know Jesus, don't they? But forgiveness, even forgiveness of a horrible thing like that, it's not giving up on justice. Our forgiveness is just us saying, God, you judge. I'm going to remove myself and move on. Otherwise, this unforgiveness is going to poison me. Last but not least, I, I like this one a lot. That's why I'm going to say it again. Here's maybe the one thing you can remember from tonight. Letting the person that hurts you off your hook doesn't mean they're off God's hook. God will take care of it, but he wants us to heal and move on so we can be a better servant in his kingdom. Because if I'm just so consumed with this past hurt and hang-ups and things like that, by the way, we do have a great group, Celebrate Recovery. Bob Scott's sitting right over here. He's the leader of that group. Unforgiveness is a great reason to go to Celebrate Recovery. It's all about drugs and alcohol. Unforgiveness, anger, bitterness, depression, anxiety, anything and everything, hurt, habit, hang-up, that is Celebrate Recovery in a nutshell. But unforgiveness only hurts us, not them. Because if we don't forgive somebody, for, for the most part, and I've taught on this before, it's not likely they even care that we don't forgive them. They've moved on. They hurt us. They don't really care anyway because they hurt us. So who's it really hurting when I hold on to it? Me. So we're going to close in prayer. But as we do, two things. If you need prayer, maybe to release some unforgiveness, I'll be down here. But even more important than that, maybe you've never asked Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. Don't leave here tonight not knowing your final destination, which is heaven, eternity. To get there, you have to put your hope, your faith, and your trust, like we've been studying all night, trust God with your destiny. So let's pray.
Lord, tonight, we love you. Um, thank you for getting us through these 50 chapters of Genesis. It's so rich and so much application for us tonight. But I do pray specifically tonight, Lord, if anybody here is struggling or watching online even, if they're struggling with unforgiveness, allow them through your Holy Spirit to let that go. Help them let it go, Lord. Give them freedom. You love us, Lord. You're, you're graceful, merciful. You love and want the best for your children. So allow your children to forgive even those terrible things that have happened so they can keep their eyes and their focus and their trust on you. And Lord, we, we're just people. We're sinners. We're weak. We need your help. Holy Spirit, help us let it go and let God be God. In Jesus' name we pray. We all said? Amen. See you. I won't see you this weekend. I'll be in South Africa, but I'll see you in a few weeks. Don't miss next Wednesday when we start Mark.